0: To the New Disruptors, a podcast exploring the new ways that creative people can reach their audiences using technology. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. In this podcast, I have with me Mark Frauenfelder, the founder of Boing Boing, the guy who started up Make Magazine and an unabashed proponent of exploring how to make things from scratch and in collaboration with others. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks a lot, Glenn. And, and I just
1: have to say, this is such a fantastic concept for a podcast
0: series. Well, thank you. And, you know, I'm a, I'm an unabashed fan of your work. And I say that you're a great inspiration for doing this series too. Cause I think, you know, one of the threads I could take from your, your public life. I don't know what goes on in private. Well, I do from your book, which we'll talk about, but from your <laughs> public life, you've always been the most incredible supporter of other people's creativity. You're a creative person yourself. Your wife is a creative person. You seem to bubble out with ideas and things. But I thought, Boing Boing, from the start, this seemed to me to be a way to say, hey, you're not out there alone, you happy mutants. You're like us. We like to make stuff. Have you always thought of this as a way to, I mean, when it was a, a magazine and then into the to the web, that it's a way to celebrate creativity?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That was what I think Boing Boing was really about from the get-go was people who were creating really great stuff. And and, uh, at the beginning with Boing Boing was mainly media because that was kind of around the time of the zine explosion and post-punk people who were doing like brain machines and scientific science research at home and all those kinds of things that were being enabled by computer technology becoming cheap enough to get into the hands of artists and creative people. And then the, the fact that they could communicate with each other more easily than before. And so that, and then shortly after we started Boing Boing, we did the Happy Mutant Handbook, which was again a book about people who were creating their own stuff, their own media and things and, and robotics and getting on the internet. And I, I don't really know why, but it's always been really interesting to me when people are able to create something and get it out there to other people without having to go through the typical big distribution network that would kind of exert some kind of editorial control over it. It, To me, it's better to have individuals and small groups create something and release it because they love it and they're passionate about it, and then let the audience find them, rather than have it go through some intermediary that's going to try to tailor it or edit it to the Be appealing to as many people as possible to me that that's always kind of boring
0: That seems to me to be one of the great messages of the internet is not just we can all communicate but that it lowers those Barriers and if you look at chris anderson's the long tail book, he was talking about products in the long tail, that it was suddenly efficient to distribute things, whether digitally or as physical objects, that sold in very small numbers, and that for the most part could never bring someone a living or real return. But if you could sell one copy of a million things, and each of those things, especially if they were digital, suddenly became valuable again and reached an audience, do you feel that the internet has brought that long tail concept to everything now, not just, say, a a book or a digital movie? Yeah,
1: oh, for sure. I think it has in, in every single way you can think of how a, uh, a manufacturer of products does, does runs its business. For example, you can find a way for someone to do it really inexpensively or for free. So like funding now with, with crowdfunding, designing things, design software, like, SketchUp is such a powerful 3D design tool. When I started as an engineer in uh, like 1985, working at Memorex, and I was designing giant-size hard disk drives, <laughs> I was using doing it on pencil and paper on a drafting drafting board my first year and then the second year. I love this
0: about you. I love this about you. I don't think a lot of people know. You mentioned this when we did a Greek podcast on Boing Boing some weeks ago. You mentioned that and I think, you know, if people look at you and they look at your career, they're going to say, oh, Mark Fraunfelder must have grown up in a commune and he probably started by (laughs) making, you know, drums from oil cans and then, of course, that's how it evolved in this life. But you started as an engineer and you transitioned into this life of, like, analog handmade creativity with a strong digital focus.
1: Yeah. There there were certain things about engineering that I enjoyed, the the design part and making prototypes and all that that kind of stuff, but I kind of gravitated towards journalism because the ideas came a lot more quickly. And in a way, this whole maker movement is like engineering that's been really accelerated quickly because you can iterate so fast now. Before, like when I was an, an engineer, it took forever to get prototypes made. Finally got around to using the CAD software. That was my original point. <laughs> the CAD software was like, you know, $150,000 and they, they would charge like $50 an hour to use it. They'd have this dongle in the back oh of God. the uh, workstation and some representative from the, the uh, software publisher would come over and and stick the dongle into a meter and say okay you've been you know your the company's used this software for you know a thousand hours and here's your bill for the month and google sketchup is probably ten thousand times as powerful as that uh, original CADCAM software and it's free so that's just an example and then, like making prototypes it's incredible how great you can have a 3d printer at home or in the office or or in a lab and just spit out prototypes one after the other and iterate like crazy and then you can take it up a step and get a a, a metal piece fabricated from shapeways or iMaterialize materialize before you have to actually order the tooling to be made before it was like when i was designing disk drives you'd get we'd make foam core prototypes We'd have if uh, if our shop couldn't machine out something from a piece of Delrin or or aluminum or something for a fit and feel kind of prototype. You'd have to take it to an outside place to do it, and it would take a long time to turn something around. So that kind of acceleration it, that that means that you know an individual now is more powerful than MemREX's engineering team in 1985. That's that's exciting. So you you know we're, we're just beginning to see. Lots of stuff happening.
0: When I was trained as a graphic designer in the late 80s, I know one of the things that the school I went to, which was influenced heavily by Swiss graphic design, which is a very precise school, and one of the (laughs) things they emphasized was iteration. It wasn't enough that you did one sketch, you had one idea. It was that you went through and you tried out, you thought of it as a problem, whether it was a poster or a completely aesthetic work. And the way you describe this, it seems like these tools give the average person, the opportunity to iterate and test. Has that made an impact that you, this cost structure you're talking about, that I can now try a hundred designs and not one and blow my life savings on it? I think so. There are two great things. One is just being able to iterate on your own
1: and do it really inexpensively so you can... uh,
0: So even in the computer, like 3D modeling before you ever touch a real thing.
1: You can, and then you can get the 3D plastic part printed out really inexpensively at at home or at your local hackerspace and then you can get a, a better one made but i think equally importantly is that then you can upload your digital model to a place like thingiverse or share it on any other kind of community of practice website and other people will try it out and do their own variations on it so it like forks in a whole bunch of different directions and inevitably somebody's going to come up with something that you never would have thought of on your own that's much better than than your original design so you have this kind of multiplication thing going online and that's that's the great thing is just seeing the way that the evolution of design of things has sped up like crazy one example i always like to give is with espresso machines and the temperature control it was something that i I talked about in in my book. you know espresso machines are over a hundred years old, and the design evolution has been really flat for the last hundred years or so and then about fifteen years ago, somebody decided just a, a, somebody at home decided to replace the biometallic thermostat in an espresso machine and put a proportional integral derivative temperature control system in which is much more precise it can lock down the temperature to about one-tenth of one degree as opposed to a bimetallic thermostat which is like about a 40 degree temperature swing and so you uh, can have much better espresso that way but the uh, big companies that were making espresso never had thought about this but all these people on Coffee were swapping ideas and plans eventually moving it up to kits and finally, now the big espresso manufacturers have caught on and they're putting PID temperature control systems in their espresso makers so that's just one example that that kind of thing is going to happen more and more when you get these kinds of funding and design and prototyping and manufacturing methods
0: inexpensive methods into the hands of of individuals. It felt like something snapped a couple of years ago is, I I know Kickstarter is part of it because it took a lot of people who had ideas and it was very, I mean, especially with the credit collapse in 2008 and the inability of small businesses to raise money and then people's, you know, if you before me, you would have gone to your parents or family and asked for money and said, you know, I've got this great idea. I think I can make hundreds of thousands of dollars. I need a little seed funding. So even if you could do the 3D printing and small batches and so forth, the money might not have even have been there. So Kickstarter seemed to come along at a really great inflection point. When 3D printing got cheap, you could get funding from people. People were ready to spend relatively small amounts of money on new products. So it wasn't a new computer, but it was a $50 dock or Or like the glyph that, you know, is kind of, it didn't start everything, but the glyph was certainly a great example of an early entrant into that. Let's make iterate and make prototypes and produce something that is worthwhile without having had to go through the usual process and then raise money from people i just saw this recently too i think exactly what you're talking about with the espresso machine is the elevation dock which was funded on kickstarter and raised a very large amount of money and they had delays in manufacture partly because of quantity when they finally got the dock into most people's hands apple changed from the 30 pin dock to the new lightning dock and the company said look we're going to come out with an adapter we'll offer like a short-term solution and then a new circuit board eventually well of course we don't need to wait for the company now because we have 3D tools like SketchUp and so forth. And um, Matt Howie uh, documented this on his site, this thing that happened is about almost two months ago now, where he uh, caught in touch with a friend of his who uh, at the XOXO conference had won a MakerBot because uh, Bray Pettis uh, behind MakerBot had given away not one – I think he wound up giving away two or three – MakerBots because people had come up with such great ideas at the conference for things they wanted to do with MakerBots that they just gave more away. So, one of the fellows who won one, he and Matt talk about it. They come up with some adapters. They put it up onto, um, onto Thingiverse, and it gets improved. And then you can just print it out. And printing it out isn't, in the end, much cheaper than what the cast metal part that the folks at uh, Elevation Design eventually came up with. But you could do it now, and it was this feedback loop. As people said, there's a problem. Manufacturer's not solving it as fast as I like. Let's iterate this, and then now everyone has a copy of the design, and we can print it out ourselves. Have you seen other examples like that where there's a case to be made for even, say, people owning a 3D printer themselves in their home? I think so. I mean, for kind of like with 3D printing,
1: with the World Wide Web, circa 1993, mm-hmm. so we don't re- really know where it's going to go, but, but I am pretty confident that it's going to be really big, all of this 3D printing and all kinds of inexpensive manufacturing methods to make things, or getting circuit board designed and prototyped really quickly and easily. So it's, it's kind of hard, I, I can't think of any specific examples, but I just think that Having these tools out there is, is surely going to lead to, to some really interesting and cool things. Well,
0: that's the thing. You can't predict where lightning strikes, right? Is you, you can fire up the Van de generator and you don't know exactly where this new and remarkable thing is going to hit and create the, I mean, like the web or like 3D printing for that matter. You don't know that that's going to um, create an entire new economy.
1: You don't really, and no, I mean, I'm getting a 3D printer for Christmas. It's it's half mine and, and half my, my daughter, so I'm really excited about it. And uh, there are things that that I'm excited to start working on right away. Like one of the things is uh, we uh, I've been getting interested in kites lately because I've been working a little bit with kite aerial photography. Oh, yeah. And so if I want to, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways that you could use 3D printing for that. For instance, if I want to make like a a tetrahedron kite, it will be pretty easy for me to make a little joint. I'm not, what's the word I'm thinking of? A connector so that I can connect all the struts easily. The other thing is the actual camera rig itself to hold the kite. It's really easy to make custom parts where the, the little camera can just snap right in. So I think that world of being able to quickly make something without having to have a milling machine or using other kinds of tools that would take a really long time, that's going to pave the way to all sorts of cool products that people are going to make. And then of course I'll, we'll share those designs and somebody will come up with improvements for them or something completely different that, uh, that we didn't even think of. But I think the idea of being able to quickly share all that kind of stuff and instantly is going to, we don't even know how big it's going to be, but it's mm. going to be really big.
0: That's what I think about when I think about the transitions that have happened already in our, in our short lifetimes. Like you and I have both been through the desktop publishing, you know, conventional publishing to desktop publishing transition. And we've both been through the sort of print to web to mobile transition that's underway. We were working in publications, working in journalism or books and other things. As this went, and you know, I was trained as a, I, I'm just gonna, if I, I have to watch out that I don't say every podcast, you know, I was trained as a typesetter, but not in, <laughs> say this too often, but not in hot lead, but in the generation just before desktop publishing, which is this optical digital hybrid that was really bizarre. And I watched that go into, oh my gosh, this is this, as you know, like with the, this equipment you used at Memorex, this is this $50,000 piece of equipment. It's probably 200 grand in today's dollars. And, Instead of having to use this and learn this weird language, all I have to do is drag and drop stuff. You know, from nineteen eighty-three to nineteen eighty-four, I went from using what felt like nineteen sixties technology to using twenty-first century technology. And we've seen that happen with the web too, is that the tools were really complicated, you had know, to be an expert, you need know, to be a programmer, and then it became WYSIWYG and then it went a step further where it's all templated and you, you know, you've got Tumblr and WordPress and you don't have to know. When I look at the physical world though, there's often a different element there. And as you talk about being able to make custom equipment without having to have the milling gear or you know a wood shop, a metal shop, all those things, there's a a level of expertise, I feel like, that you don't need. The expertise isn't valueless. The people who spent their lives gaining it can still bring so much to this because they know materials work. But do you see that there's a – or how does the, the bar get lowered for people who would have done this before. They have the creative impulse, but they weren't going to spend or couldn't spend five or ten years of their lives developing machine schools. Let's lower that bar for those people to bring that now into this realm of physical making. I think
1: that, uh, like you were saying, th- there are some really great designers today and artists who are using 21st century technology to produce beautiful designs. And a lot of these people might not have been able to be doing what they're doing if they were using the, the kind of technology that we were using before the desktop publishing revolution. Just because some people are not, they're not geeks and they're not, they're not interested and they're not really that good at, at getting under the hood and tinkering around and adjusting gears and, and things like that. And so they're kept from doing that. Moving the analogy over to the physical world, there are some people who are just not going to be able to figure out how to use a milling machine really well or other kinds of uh, fabrication equipment. But the fact that they have things like SketchUp or even really super easy 3D modeling programs like Tinkercad Hmm. that my nine-year-old daughter likes to design little animals, 3D animals on, that kind of thing is going to definitely lower one of the bars one of the barriers to entry in the same way that desktop publishing and the internet and blogs they made the barrier to entry a lot lower in terms of money the only barrier really is like how interesting you are to other people
0: (laughs) that's great which is a bit which is a barrier but i think a lot of the story of the 20th century was mass culture teaching people they were boring. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's too simplified. but what? Because I think where you come from, the place you come from with, I think, all of your work is that people are interesting. Not everybody, but that people are creative and interesting. And so if you give people the tools to express their creativity where those tools didn't exist before, those people then have the opportunity to show that they have something of interest to share.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I am still a believer in Sturgeon's Law, Uh, science fiction writer Theodore Sturgeon, who said... 90% 90% of everything is crap, which <laughs> is probably optimistic, really. But what I'm saying is that you are, by, by lowering the barrier to entry for, for people who aren't really t- technically adept, but are, but are creative and artistic, and uh, to allow them to create beautiful physical things you are you, you're not necessarily getting a, a higher yield you're just giving them opportunities to make things that that they might not have been able to make before so so you're you're kind of equal you're you're leveling the playing field on one way, but there's still going
0: to be an awful lot of garbage that's coming out the other end of this this pipe oh that's true, although i think uh, i should I should plug your book right now because I think it's a great Point to mention that is your book made by hand that came out in two thousand and eleven, right? So a, a book for last year feels um, mm-hmm. very contemporary. A year later, even uh, is that, I know it's things you were <laughs> about exploring that? over a decade. But I think your book was it wasn't about. There's that issue of the audiences. Are is everything we're doing have to have an audience for it? And the long tail story is partly that anything you do could have an audience, even if it's five or fifty people now. So the answer could be yes. A lot of artists, a lot of creative people create work for their own pleasure, and they're happy sometimes to share it or not. That was differentiated from maybe a craftsman. When I was trained as a graphic designer, I never thought of it as, even though you can do art with graphic design clearly, I thought of it much more as a craft. I'm doing something that's meant to be shared. And I think your book, Made by Hand, is a combination of that. Part of it is things that you do for your own pleasure. Part of it is things you do to share for whatever reason, part share commercially, and part to create a community around things that are enjoyable to create together, to create a pool of learning and then some kind of thing at the end that isn't just watching a TV program. It's you get together with people to figure out, for instance, how to raise chickens. I mean, I think your, chicken's, yeah. your chicken story is a very interesting thing because you're willing to explore your own failure, which I think is an amazing, humbling thing and is a great gift as a writer that you're willing to say, here's what I did wrong. And wow, did I learn from that? And wow, that was that a mess up? Because that helps other people not just to avoid specific mistakes you might make, but it lets people know, I think, that there are communities out there you can consult to help you learn and that you can fail at something and then come back and figure out how to do it again. And How much does failure drive this process of of making? I mean, talking very generally, but the idea that you may not succeed or you might make something that's crap, but you don't want it to deter you from actually being a creative person. The book really does kind of chronicle my, my failures and successes.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And there's a few, there's a few minor victories in there for sure, but it's kind of my struggles and and learning from mistakes and things. And it was interesting to see a few of the Amazon reviews where people were saying, you know, why, why would anyone want to read a book about this guy who just keeps on screwing up? (laughs) You know, I I want to read about how to do things and, and be good at something. But I actually think, that to me, it's really, I learn a lot about when, when somebody writes about how they screwed up, made a mistake, the complete disaster, you really learn an awful lot. You almost don't learn anything if someone executes something flawlessly and then talks about it because you only see that little path that's just like from point A to point B without them falling off and, and uh, getting back on. That's That's the thing that's interesting to me. And so I've just found that making mistakes or or, uh, not doing things right the first time give you really good opportunities to take you in a direction that you never would have thought of, of going. And you could actually improve upon your original plans because of the, the mistakes that you've made. And there's also been a lot of research that shows, shows that making mistakes, kind of the trial and error, you know, iteration is kind of a, a, a trial and error process. And, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't, you, you shouldn't intentionally try to make mistakes. That won't work at all. You should always <laughs> try your best and, and shoot for success every time. But when you do make a mistake, you shouldn't let it discourage you. You should just realize that is part of the creative process. And you're like, means you're pushing yourself. You're taking yourself in a, in a place you've never been before and, and perhaps. Other people haven't been before either. And so you're kind of forging a trail. And, and so you're, of course, you're going to meander a little bit because you are trying to figure out how to get there.
0: I've wondered if our culture, even when you look at things like glossy magazines and photo retouching of women's bodies, and this will sound like a crazy ta- tangent, but follow <laughs> follow with me for a second, is, I almost <laughs> wonder if that culture makes people fear failure because everything is too perfect, that everything we see, not just the pictures of women and and uh, unrealistic body image projection that shows up in magazines. But even the extent that you take a digital picture now and it's perfect and maybe the composition isn't good, but all the parameters are perfect and without doing anything, the lighting is perfect and you buy mass produced goods and you buy Apple products or products from a number of manufacturers now. And the level of build quality or finish is so far beyond what used to be a mass market consumer level that people could be almost paralyzed by that perfection, because it's only achievable with massive um ecosystems behind it to make it seem easy and make it seem cheap, affordable, or achievable. And when you talk about failure, I think of how many people are immobilized by the notion of not getting it right the first time, where – If we combine that notion of iteration, the whole point is that you're experimenting, that life can be a journey of working through problems, working through artistic things to reach a goal, and that failure is always going to be part of that. Or successes that aren't quite as good as what you want, too. I think that one of the big reasons that people are afraid of making mistakes is because
1: for their entire education, they've been taught that mistakes equal bad grades. Mm. And so they've been conditioned to to avoid making mistakes. And one way to avoid making mistakes is not to take any risks. They're going to stay with what is tried and true, what they know by solutions to their problems rather than try to solve things on their own. And I think that's unfortunate because once you start working on solving your own problems your own way, if you have like a replacing a thermostat in your house or putting a new dishwasher in those kinds of things once you start doing that and every time you have a success it builds your self-efficacy and you feel that you are able to get things done in the world around you in the in the human designed world around you and that's like a, a really great feeling that's like one of the best things that that i've gotten out of all of this with my do-it-yourself experiments is that I don't feel as impotent as I had in the past when when something goes awry in my life I feel like I have a better shot at kind of figuring out how it works and how you might be able to go about fixing it and a lot of times I'm not able to and I'll have to call in a professional to do it but Sometimes I can do it on my own. And and when you do that, it's a great feeling because there's so many different things in our lives that we don't have control over, you know, politics and the economy, bureaucracy, the cable television company. (laughs) And so it's great to have a little bit of control in your life in, you know, the way the things around you work and the systems that keep you alive and well. Having a little bit of say in that has tremendous benefits to your sense of well-being, I think.
0: I had that happen uh, a few years ago as we got a new washing machine. It stopped working. And it wasn't that old, and but it was out of warranty, and I was thinking, I'm going to have to call somebody in, and it's going to be $200 to get someone out here to do whatever. So I download the schematics. I go onto discussion boards about washing machines, since it's the future, and there are discussion boards about washing machines, and any kind of anything you could buy, however non-user serviceable they try to make it, there is discussion forum or many about it, and I find the information, oh, there's a clean-out trap that you have to get to, and I download the schematics that show me how to get there, and after a lot of cursing and anger because they didn't design this thing to be serviceable by ordinary customers. I could got this one panel off, pulled one piece of metal off to release a valve, pulled out some coins that were from someone's pocket, put it (laughs) back together. And I thought, that's $200 to my credit. You know, that's the money. I've had to do it, unfortunately, three times. I have small children, as you have once. (laughs) Uh, But I, I wonder, the experience I had there too was that community. How much does community make up part of our ability now to to do more of these things on our own. That is a major, major part of it. And that's such a,
1: the, the greatest thing is that there are people who want to talk about these problems and when they solve them, it uh, is that kind of ego boo economy thing where it is fun to talk about how you solved the problem. So you can go on Google and say the type of laundry machine you have, type in the model number and say, won't run. And you can then get into the forums and read what other people are doing. I've solved so many problems that way. And I think everybody is starting to do that more and more. It's so great. Like there was this broken part on our Volkswagen Beetle and the shops said it would take $500 to fix. And I just thought that that's way too expensive for something that shouldn't be that much. And so I found the part on eBay for $60 and it was like a Chinese knockoff thing, but it, it fit and it works. And so $50, some some scraped knuckles, and uh, you know, a lot of cursing, It right. was done. But you have to it's have a like Band-Aid
0: it... budget. That's the one thing. you got to yeah. put some money into Band-Aids. And... You do. <laughs> but still. It's so great to be able to solve the problem like that. I think it's interesting to try to define what problems you can solve, too. And that's uh, one of the places where I wonder where 3D printing becomes part of a different kind of economy is, you know, you and I are more willing and you were certainly more willing than I am to fix and do things. I'm, I am a a little too eager to call a tradesperson out because I've decided where my limits of knowledge are and what I want to learn, where I, where I feel like if I took a class in that I could do it, I don't want to take a class in that.
1: Sure. Yeah. You have to set limits because yeah, otherwise, because you have a limited amount of time and you have, certain interests. So if you don't want to do it, then I understand.
0: There's that spectrum of where that point's going to be set and also people's own mechanical abilities. And where I wonder if 3D printing fits into that is, does an economy blossom where, um, for instance, there's a site, I think it's called like small appliance parts or something like that. There's probably 50 sites like this. And every once in a while we drop something in the kitchen and it shatters. And in the past, Appliance X, like a food processor we bought 15 years ago, would be broken. There'd be nothing you could do about it. We'd have to buy a new one. And instead, I can go to this place and for $10, I got a new part X. And I'm thinking, well, if I have a 3D printer, I don't even go to that site. I go to the community sites in which people have been designing maybe even improved parts and I print it out. And that might only be a small percentage of people. It might be you and me and maybe we're only 1% of the economy. But 1% of a replacement part economy could be enormous. 1% of anything in the world could be enormous. And I wonder where the opportunities are that come out of that. That's that's a really great question.
1: And that could have a, a huge impact. Um, l- like I'm thinking, another thing with my Volkswagen is the, the little cup holders. The, the car's about 12 years old at this point, And the cup holders are these like plastic things that kind of screw in to oh, these yeah. mounts. And they've degraded over time. They're all cracked and oxidizing. And re- even on eBay, the replacement parts are ridiculously expensive, like 40 bucks for this little crappy cup shaped piece of plastic. And so somebody's going to come along with a 3D printer at home or or an array of them. And you can tell the person what you want. They'll do the research and, and get the specs on the thing and make it for you for a fraction of the amount that the parts uh shop will sell it
0: to you for. And we're gonna start seeing three D cameras. I think people have asked what will be useful about having a three D camera because we don't have three D displays, you have to use special glasses and there's all these other things. I think the ready availability of multiple cameras and say smartphones or even portable, you know, like cam, uh not DLSRs, but things like that, I think it's gonna have a novelty value and then you're gonna have the value of, oh, I wanna make a thing. And with a 3D camera, I don't have to take six pictures. I take a few perspectives to get the stereoscopic effect. The software stitches it together much more accurately. And then I've got the thing from which I start to make a part or a replacement or whatever.
1: The software that people are making to work with the Kinect to do scanning is getting better and better. I I was surprised the resolution that people are getting out of those things like scanning scanning. Fossils and things like that we will see these kind of 3 d handheld scanner camera things that you just wave over an object
0: and you 'll have a beautiful 3 d model ready to go it 's going to be really fascinating too then we have all the intellectual property issues we don 't won 't get into those yet <clears throat> they 're going to come, but i don 't know um, I, I wanted to back up this is something too is that you 're one of the people who coined the word maker, i think aren 't you It seems like that term came suddenly into parlance around the time that Make Magazine started. Yeah, I I, I credit that to Dale Doherty over at O'Reilly. He's he's the
1: founder of Make, and he came up with uh, the magazine idea because he released this great series of books for O'Reilly called the Hacks Series. And it was like car PC hacks, home automation hacks, astronomy hacks— and they were uh, a successful line so he wanted to come up with a magazine that was for a more general interest group of people and so um he he knew of me from boing boing and uh, my work at wired magazine so called me in before there was a name and we were brainstorming different names for for what the magazine would be and i was sold uh on the name geek mm. and and dale <laughs> and we had some other names like tinker and stuff and then dale had one called make I said, oh, I think it should be Geek. But that was, of course, now realizing it, Make is such a brilliant name, and Geek is a horrible name because it's really very exclusive.
0: Well, didn't you think at the time there might not be a huge audience, there'd be some audience, but didn't it seem then that maybe this is a geeky, hacky thing and we won't find, you know, it's not going to be millions upon millions of people? So Geek might have seemed like self-identifying. That's that's probably exactly why. And, um,
1: you know, I don't think... Uh, anybody that the magazine, when we started, expected it to take off like it did. We were hoping to get about 10,000 subscribers after 12 months. And I think we had between forty to 60,000 subscribers by the uh, second or third issue. So it just took off really fast and it's been growing like crazy ever since. There's been a really star- sharp angle in the growth rate of Maker Fair attendees. The first Maker Fair had 20,000 people in 2006, and this last one we had had 110,000 people.
0: Oh and now there's multiples, too. Aren't they happening in different parts yeah. of the country? And when you started the magazine, I think I contributed something to issue t- number two about with a photographer friend about photographing things yeah. for eBay, right? And mm-hmm. I remember seeing it, and the first issue came out, and I thought, oh, this is so great, and it's so beautiful, and God, is there an audience for this? Because it's, it felt like something that needed to exist. And I thought people aren't that creative. People have become passive. I was so, uh, it's funny when you get older, you're supposed to become more jaded. I'm so much less jaded than I was a decade ago (laughs) because mate came out and I thought, ah, well, I hope they get a few issues out of this because this is really fun and it's neat, but God, I don't know. Well, people, people are just too passive in this new age where they're watching stuff on the net and they're whatever. And it has been such a um, has been such a joy to know that this maker thing has exploded, both the magazine and the whole community and the fair, and then all these shops like Tech Shop that is opening to provide people with direct access to tools. We have a small one in town. Another one called Maker House is opening uh, next month that I went and toured 10,000 square feet in Seattle with a wood shop and a, a metal shop and the state of the art 3D printers that can do 20 different sources simultaneously and a crazy amount of technology in one place. Place and uh, that they're going to offer a membership, and I, it's, I thought, <laughs> I, I'm so happy to be proven wrong that people are so excited about this stuff that they made Make Magazine a success. What, what are the topics that get the most interest in the magazine? Now that you've had all this time to see what kind of feedback you get,
1: there are a number of core areas of interest for people. Like electronics is always a very popular topic. Whenever we do surveys, people always say more basic electronics information and projects that that teach electronics. So interesting, it shows that we're still kind of in a growth stage of uh, this whole world. People are wanting to learn fundamentals about things. And then the other thing that they're really interested in is new tools and things like 3D printing and laser cutters and 3D design tools. So learning about any kind of new enabling technology that makes it easier for them to create things is always interesting. And and that's, that's really one of the interesting things about the, the kind of evolution of the maker world that I've seen since we started the magazine in 2005 is that early on, it was all about people making these kind of one-off things like, Oh, look what I made. This is cool. And now we're at this point where the, the, top makers like the alpha makers are making tools and technologies for other makers oh that's great yeah that's what they're concentrating on so like Bree pettis is the perfect example started out as a maker he was at make magazine doing his weekend project videos where he was like we're gonna make a turbojet now and <laughs> you know we're gonna make a uh a kite aerial photography
0: rig and now he's creating this tool for other makers to make stuff. Oh, and he's like a disruptor of a disruptor too, is that 3D printing was disruptive enough in itself. And as it dropped in price, it became more so. And then MakerBot disrupted that trend by making it, I don't know, what was it, like a 20th of the cost, which has now forced everybody else, all the higher-end companies to react to that. Like we're already seeing like third-level disruptions in the space of less than a decade.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's great. And then I think Arduino was a, a huge disruptor as well. Because before, if you were a designer and you wanted to create a product of some kind, you would have to hire an electrical engineer to design circuits for you to give your product the interaction that you wanted. But Arduino was created by Massimo Bonzi, a designer in Italy, specifically as a electronics prototyping platform for artists and designers who wanted to add interactivity to their products. And so it's really easy to program and use and super exciting. It basically is, you know, this credit card size circuit board that costs 25 or $30 and lets you emulate almost any circuit you can imagine, any, you know, fairly simple circuit, but it can be fairly sophisticated too that is that's huge you don't need the electrical engineer anymore to design it and again it's the iteration thing and it's going online in any kind of application you can think of wanting to make and that requires the code that the arduino uses there's going to be somebody who's posted
0: code that you can reuse in your own project this seems like the amazing thing to me too is that all the pieces have come together separately and they're all converged in one place so that, uh, like the Arduino, that you don't have to solve that problem anymore. Or I was hearing from many places now how easy it is to get circuit boards made that even – I don't know, maybe it was even a couple years ago, even less than that. It, you'd have to uh, you know, probably learn how to do it yourself to do it affordably. Now there are service bureaus. You use software, some of it free to create circuit board designs. You send it out and you get it back and it's a relatively affordable thing. So it feels like you have this industrial scale thing where equipment is totally unaffordable, except at a huge industrial scale. Then it comes down to the level that you can have service bureaus or small businesses can own it. Then it's in people's houses. And you, it feels like we've cycled through that stage really rapidly lately.
1: Oh yeah, it's it's amazing seeing this kind of stuff. Like there's this uh, website called fritzing.org, dot org, and it's a place where you can, if you if you designed a circuit using a solderless breadboard, you can basically take the little model of the solderless breadboard and plug in the little components into the breadboard. This is all on the computer. And you just plug it in, so it looks like your solderless breadboard, and then you can look at a printed circuit board view of it. It like generates a printed oh circuit God. board, which is pretty, it's not the greatest. You have to like really optimize it, but it's going to get better and better as it iterates. And pretty soon you'll just be able to you know prototype it on your solderless breadboard, copy it onto Fritzing, and then you can order the printed circuit boards directly through fritzing and, and have them delivered, you know, 48 hours or 24 hours later in the mail. And you've got your printed circuit boards.
0: So what's sort of exciting too, is that this this melding of the digital analog world that used to be such separate things. Like we can do, maybe in desktop publishing, you know, we do digital designs, you'd send it out and you'd get an offset book. But in most cases, a lot of digital work was all digital because there wasn't any efficient cost-effective way to take it out of the machine. You had to be working at industrial scale or had to have a really large commercial project that made it worthwhile to gain the skills and to work with all the different people you would. But everything you talk about is things coming together into one place where you can do most of the work digitally, test it, model it, talk to people about it, refine it. Then you move into a physical world where it's actually affordable to do. And then we have new manufacturing techniques where you can take something that's a prototype and instead of having to make a million units, can make 500 or 1,000 before you scale up, if you scale up. And if you do
1: end up having something that's really successful and you want to scale up and go to China to have it manufactured, there are lots of really great reps who will act as a kind of liaison for you and get Companies in China to make them for you, and you can find uh, ethical manufacturers in China, and uh, you know th- they're kind of certified as not being sweatshop labor. So those kinds of systems are in place too for makers who really want to take it to the next level.
0: I want to circle back around here at the end to your book because, uh, which I will remind readers, is called Made by Hand. It'll be in the show notes, a link to the book, which. It's funny because we've been talking so much about digital techniques and digital products and analog manufacture. And, you know, your book's got so much in it that's about working with your hands and things that we forgot about in the 20th century, like beekeeping and raising chickens and kombucha tea, which is not, most of the world didn't forget about, but we didn't know about (laughs) in America, let's say. I've had, we've had some, some kombucha in the fermenting, uh, below the sink here not too long ago, too. Um, what's the appeal when you're surrounded by all this high technology and these digital tools that let you make analog things? now what 's the appeal to chickens and and fermenting tea and bees and and home gardening raising interesting vegetables where Where does that appeal lie? I wanted to do something that would have a lot of bang
1: for the buck and a lot of impact on my life. so eating is something that everyone does you know everyone who 's fortunate enough three times a day and so, if I got more involved in preparing and preserving and growing my own food, then I was really making a a big change in my life. So spending an hour a day on making kombucha and yogurt and sauerkraut and collecting eggs and processing the honey from my honeybees, roasting my own coffee, those kinds of things I'm going to appreciate and learn from and experience and be able to share with my friends multiple times a day. If I were to work on a robot on the other hand and design a robot and everything like that. Is that really going to make that much of an impact on my life? It might, (laughs) I I might be absorbed in the design and construction of it for, for months on end or even years. But once you make the robot, it kind of spins around in circles, avoids the wall to me. I think it's, it's an interesting pursuit, but that's not as interesting to me as, doing something that really has a a profound impact on my life, like like food does. And that's why one of the reasons I focus so much on food in the book.
0: I can provide my armchair psychological analysis of Mark Fraunfelder's. Mark likes to share with others. (laughs) It's marvelous, though, because I think so much, if you look at Boing Boing, has been sharing stories and sharing the experience with people. Make is sharing knowledge and expertise, encouraging people. Your book is sharing this way of life that's not a rejection of – Everything that's good and modern and whatever, but it's a way to embrace things that were discouraged because maybe they were time-consuming. I mean, your grandparents or great-grandparents, they didn't want to raise chickens anymore. My my family left the old country and I don't think they ever walked to the country willingly again, you know? But but (laughs) generations later, I'm like, well, we gave up so much. We gave up, don't even necessarily the connection with nature, but the mode of thinking that you get when you do things with your hands, whether it's making something that comes out of digital origins or it's making bread or what have you. I feel like we gave up so much of that because that used to be a sign of disease of like a lack of things, a lack of mm-hmm. food, a lack of the ability to have spare leisure time, we're now and you describe in your book, taking something that's leisure time and doing a kind of work, but it's a voluntary work that you do to ground yourself and feel that you're you're doing something meaningful
1: that's a good point like it's not as much fun to do all that stuff if it's a necessity that you have to do it in order to live if you're doing it just voluntarily, it is more rewarding. But to not do it at all, in either case, I, I do think you're missing out. If you don't do any of that kind of stuff, there there is a certain kind of reward you get from getting a little bit closer to the, the food that you eat every day. And you, you just have to do it to understand, I think what the, the benefit is. I got
0: to work on the sauerkraut because that's the one that nobody else in my family will eat it, unfortunately, but maybe I, can con- oh, well, maybe I can convince them. That's the thing. If I make it myself, then they have fewer objections to it. It's not a store product. It's something made with someone's loving hands.
1: Yeah, and, and the store product also, it's uh, been pasteurized, so there are no probiotics in it either. So it's just, you know, dead food. Sauerkraut prepared at home is is loaded with, with living beneficial bacteria. So there's a a big difference in the taste and the health benefits.
0: I think my new year's resolution is going to be to make sauerkraut. That's Excellent. It's so easy. Two ingredients, <laughs> salt and cabbage. I can do that. I can start with two <laughs> ingredients. Uh, well, Mark, it's a pleasure to talk to you about this whole range of subjects from making digital things and making stuff with your hands. Thanks for being uh, with me on the show.
1: Oh, you bet. Thanks a lot, and, and congratulations with this new podcast. It's,
0: it's uh, going to be fantastic. I can't wait to hear all the episodes. Thank you. We'll just keep exploring this never-ending source of topics, I think. I was talking to Mark Frauenfelder, the founder of Boing Boing, the editor of Make Magazine, and the author of a book made by hand that details the charming ways you can do things by hand to offset your digital lifestyle. This is The New Disruptors, a podcast about bridging the connection between creation and attention. You can find us on the web at muleradio.net slash newdisruptors. On Twitter and ADN, we are at New Disruptors. Subscribe to the podcast in your favorite app or through iTunes. If you'd like to sponsor the show, visit sponsor.muleradio.net. You can drop me a note via New Disruptors at muleradio.net. Our theme music was composed by my dear friend Jeff Tolbert. I'm Glenn Fleischman. Join us again next time.